Welcome to Let's Face the Facts, the rewatch podcast for the classic sitcom, The Facts of Life. Join us each week as we synopsize, analyze, criticize, and ultimately idolize the show. And now, here's your host of Let's Face the Facts, the wonderful David Almeida! Thank you, Matthew Arder. Welcome back. It's another week, another show. Thank you for downloading and pressing play. Continuing our sabbatical between seasons, we are offering up another TV Talkaholics episode. This is the show that we do every month on the Patreon. Patreon subscribers get uh, exclusive first access to these shows before they're released to the general public. The link to the Patreon, of course, every week. It's in the show notes. I always tell you that. You know that. So, this episode of TV Talkaholics is where Matthew and I synopsize an episode of Murder, She Wrote, which had an original air date of December 13th of 1987, featuring special guest Charlotte Ray. The show looks like it is still available to stream through Amazon Prime. It looks like it's in partnership with Freevee now. Before it was IMDb TV, but now it's Freevee. I don't know how all this stuff works, but anyhow, I have Prime and I clicked it and I could watch it still. So hopefully you do too and you will. That link is also in the show notes. And uh, other than reminding you that this episode was originally recorded and released in September of 2020, that's really all I got to do to set it up. I hope you enjoy this. Next week, we're going to be back to talking about the facts of life with our Get Ready for Season 9 episode. That is where we are going to be talking about everything that is pop culture from the year 1987 as we prepare for the season premiere, which of course happened that fall. I think we're ready to jump on in. Let's face the facts with TV Talkaholics Episode 10, Murder, She Wrote, featuring Charlotte Ray. about gel coat when the fourth don't you call in the more importantly well here we are back again for another edition of tv talkaholics number 10 <laughs> and look who's back matthew arter has returned oh i can't tell you david how much i enjoyed listening to the mouseketeers episode i know you're a disney fan i am a disney fan but i don't know who that bitter old queen was that you were talking to <laughs> mr x oh yeah if i told you i would have to kill you <laughs> but mr x was a really really wonderful co-host it was really a, it was a it was a kind of a breath of fresh air not gonna lie eh. you weren't impressed eh. <laughs> i don't know how he listens to his own voice it's so nasally and so gross and anyway <clears throat> <laughs> well that was altered of course he he altered his voice Clearly, he turned up the high-pitched, squeaky, nasal... See, I don't know who would do that. Who would make their voice like that on purpose? <laughs> Ugh. David, can well... we talk about <laughs> why we chose what we chose and what we chose, please? Yes, let us get right to it, because we have so much <laughs> fucking ground to cover. But it was you who was talking to me about the fact that of all the viewing things that are at our disposal, 
in this pandemic when we're just sitting in front of the TV drooling, you said to me, do you know all the murder she wrote are available through um, through Prime, technically through Prime connected with IMDb TV for those who give a shit. But uh, yes, continue with the, the story of what why you brought this up. Well, I, David, am constantly thinking of our listeners. Mm-hmm. So I like to keep this show, as we've said before, Facts of Life adjacent. Correct. As much as possible. And it dawned on me that this was the time period when shows like Love Boat was on and Ugh. and Fantasy Island with all these Love guest it. stars. So one of these people, Charlotte Ray, had to have guest starred on one of those shows. Mm-hmm. So we looked and I don't think we found anything. <laughs> we found a scant number of Love Boats and Fantasy Islands, and those are not out there. You can't get them. They're not accessible. They're worse than the middle seasons of The Facts of Life at this point. <laughs> How true. So we decided on Murder, She Wrote, because I, I happened upon an episode of Murder, She Wrote on the Hallmark Channel, the Hallmark Murder Channel, because um, <laughs> it's separate than the Hallmark, actual Hallmark Channel. Um, mm-hmm. And there were, like, there were these, like, there was Van Johnson, and there was Tom Bosley. And I was like, oh, my God, they had guest stars, too. So yeah. we found mm-hmm. an episode of Murder, She Wrote. Starring the wonderful Charlotte Ray and other guests, which we'll get to. But we are about to discuss, synopsize, and overanalyze Murder, She Wrote, Season 4, Episode 11, Doom with a View. Ooh. <laughs> it's spooky just listening to you say it (laughs) you're welcome and for those who don't know what murder she wrote is if you've been living under a rock for the last 35 years um murder she wrote is a show that starred angela lansbury as a retired english teacher who after being widowed in her early 50s becomes a very successful mystery writer And then she starts traveling all over the country and becomes a serial killer. Yeah. (laughs) Are we going to start right in with everything that's wrong with Murder, She Wrote? Or, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) the fact that, like, there's always the joke. Like, if you're at a party and Jessica Fletcher shows up, get the hell out because somebody's (laughs) going to die. Exactly. Exactly. And considering she's the one who is going to waylay the cops and the professionals in the investigation as the, I write mystery books, so therefore I'm an expert when I see a footprint or a tire track. And she's the one that throws them off the scent that it is so obvious she is the one who has killed all of those people all 12 seasons. I am fascinated um, by the fact that the police just allow her into a crime scene <laughs> and let her let her just move evidence and like mm-hmm. I mean has anyone ever heard of a mistrial? Um, yeah, exactly. And, or how does she not spend ninety percent of her life testifying in court cases? And why is why do murderers just constantly 
give her their whole story without being like, I might want to talk to a lawyer before I talk about this. Like, yeah. every murder at the end confesses step by step how they did it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, nobody wants to talk to a lawyer. Nobody wants to say, like, you know, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> yeah. I, I plead the fifth. But, um, yes, this show, which incidentally ran from 1984 to 1996, 12 seasons and these were 23 24 episodes these were the full mofo uh, 264 episodes plus four tv movies this was a behemoth of a success for cbs mostly because due to angela lansbury's involvement it was appealing to how shall i say the older generation this is murder porn that is what it's called. <laughs> Old women love murder porn. <laughs> My mother is one of them. And it's oh, yes. just, it wasn't, she's too young for the murder she wrote generation. She wasn't old when this was on. Give my mother an episode of The Closer and she is happy as a clam. <laughs> Give her an NYPD high oh, risk into unit. homicide oh god and all that oh your mother is so she's probably a murderino she would probably love the my favorite murder podcast she loves murder porn <laughs> that's that's only slightly disturbing i think to have your parents slip into that later in life every parent does though every per, every old it's person true. loves Yes, so continuing with some of just the premise of the show, because I, I mean, I was a kid. I mean, 84, when this show started, I was only 16. So I was a teenager. I was literally the opposite of the target audience. We were busy Ex watching Facts of Life. Thank you very much. <laughs> we were. And Charlie's Angels and Wonder Woman and uh, Designing Women and... Uh, but the deal is, I don't know how they, how did they find out we were gay? But, uh, but the thing is, honestly, it was fascinating for young theater queens like ourselves, young musical theater people, that Angela Lansbury was in this weekly TV show, because there are some episodes where they did let her sing, and I always tried to tune into those. And um, well, and also um, later on, towards the end of the series. Mrs. Potts was on a TV show. Yes. Because she had, younger... she had done um, Beauty and the Beast while this show was going on. Mm-hmm. And, oh, here's an interesting, uh, here's an interesting uh, little tidbit. Um, I watched a couple more just to kind of beef up a little bit. I was like, let me watch a, a couple more just to kind of have them under my belt. 12 so... years of the same plot, David. 12 years. <laughs> We need to make it clear before we start dissecting this episode that we know all of the problems. Like, if we brought up, like, a legality problem at any point, it would just make this a two-hour episode. Yes. So we know. We get it. Oh, yes. Oh, but totally. go ahead. But I watched another season five episode uh, called Prediction Murder, where she visits a old male friend who has a ranch in Arizona. And there's a psychic who shows up and foresees the death of the woman who ends up dying. Spoiler alert, 
she was in cahoots with him and she was trying to fake her own death to get out of the marriage to this dude's son. And uh, yeah, so there's that. But the one I had to go to was season four, episode six, called It Runs in the Family, where Angela Lansbury, as Jessica Fletcher, is not in the episode. Mm -hmm. The entire episode takes place in England with Jessica's cousin, Emma McGill, a retired dance hall singer. And she's got on a red wig and a kabuki makeup. And Matthew's dying right now. <laughs> the kabuki makeup, though, is in every episode because we're now watching it in HD. Yes. So, like, I could see the eyelash glue on her yeah. crooked eyelash during this episode. I could see and, her lip line, like, that yeah. was drawn way above her upper lip. Oh, I was going to point that out. I'm glad you said that. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah, Angela Lansbury has a very thin upper lip, and so a common makeup trick is you draw the lip line a little bit uh, above that, but whew, it's it's way above that, and you can clearly see where the real lip begins and ends. This was never meant to be seen in HD. No, definitely not. You could not. see people's powder. It was so, like, anyway, anyway. Yes, but in this Emma McGill, this character, Jessica's, you know, her Patty Duke uh, identical cousin, yeah. uh, she was a retired dance hall singer. So, so she's doing the old talking cockney. Oh, I don't know which was worse, the men or the gin. Oh, love, that was awful. She's, she, and you know, she's having a fucking ball. You know, she is having so much fun. Yes. But. At one point, her friends say to her, Emma, why don't you go back to the stage? Why don't you get back into it? And she says, what? Oh, no. This old voice has more cracks in it than an old teapot. Even knowing it takes three years to make an animated feature. I'm not sure Mrs. Potts had happened yet, but for her to say this voice has more cracks in it than an old teapot, I'm like, oh, how prophetic. What did she sing? Did she sing? Oh, How'd you like to spoon with me? How'd you like to spoon with me? Which Angela sang in Till the Clouds Roll By back in the 1940s. So it's literally a song that she had already done. And, uh, oh my God, it's amazing. And in addition to her in the cast, we had uh, Christopher Hewitt, Mr. Belvedere. Uh, the cop was Anthony Newley. Oh my god. In just a simple act I'm like, so is the cop gonna walk over and be like, Oh, you like this and join along with her, but it didn't happen. And a young pre Fraser, Jane Leaves. Oh. Yeah. Another cockney but oh no, he walked in and told me oh, I had to do this. Oh no, no, no that that whole we are rich people and there are these lower class hooligans at our breakfast table and all of that class shit just uh it's it's glorious i highly recommend the episode i wish your cockney accent was better i mean you ow are ooh i mean I, mine is right <laughs> on so it's like you took me there yeah yeah so that's season 4 episode 6 and the title is the final line of the show when Anthony Newley turns to her and says, You seem to have quite a knack for solving mysteries, Ms. McGill. And she says, Oh, well, let's just say it runs in the family. And she almost could have, should have just turned and winked at the fucking camera. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> 
So now that I've synopsized a completely different episode, yes. it's not the one we're talking about, but it's so wonder. It's such a wonderful counterpoint to see her doing. I mean, in twelve years, I cannot imagine it was not a lifeline to say could could Jessica have a nervous breakdown could she become an alcoholic well, could she go on a, a a killer rampage with a butcher knife she kind of did like season 6 through 9 or something that mm-hmm. there was like 3 years there where she showed up at the beginning was like hey got to go and then yep. like her nephew <laughs> or something was the was the person then she'd show up back at the end like it was in her contract like she she was done yeah so yeah she did that in yeah i think it was six and seven uh from what my research and this is you know basically imdb and wikipedia but yeah she there was a point where she was like this is getting too much for me so to lower lower her um workload lessen her workload she went to uh just jessica introducing a different detective yeah who then would go through a cookie cutter jessica fletcher murder solution and then after that, for some reason, and I, this is something I could have, should have researched more, but maybe one of our Tutti Fruities knows. Then after that, she came back with full force and became an executive producer of the show. That's why she and, came back. Because she was the executive producer now. Is it, Oh, it's because they, they basically, it was the money. It had to be. Well, they, and were they, got, they got rid of the person she did not like. Oh, I didn't know there was some yeah. type of uh, bad situation. She did not get along with a couple of the producers, and then she became executive producer, and then she was like, well, now I have a vested interest in doing this mm-hmm. show. So Yeah, and making a fuck ton more money from the reruns, the residuals and all that. And I remember reading, I think it was in TV Guide, some type of a profile about how her newly renewed revived role in the show, it did point out that they were the, the author was on set and said... At the end of a take, okay, the director looked to her for the nod to call cut. It's I, like I'm done acting. <laughs> yeah, but but even the whole thing of it's like you know theoretically the director's the one who is running the set, who is <laughs> the one who says he yay nay, and is theoretically artistically responsible for things. But mm-hmm, it's like you go, bitch. Good for you because she is still, I'm sure, making. So much money. She made money from you and me clicking on the the Prime video. And happy to give it to her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in season 12, sadly, it ended up going off the air because they took it out of its Sunday night staple location where it had been literally its entire run. And they put it Thursday nights opposite Friends and NBC's must-see TV. And everybody was convinced that that was on purpose because... I don't I yeah. don't know if people can comprehend anymore, but you have to kind of dig into your memory of what it was like for twelve year, for eleven years, murder she wrote dominated that time slot. It wasn't slipping in the ratings or anything. No. It, no. They just did it to be vindictive for some reason. Mm-hmm. Like they wanted that show to end. And it's amazing to me that something like that could kill a show. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Like, We've talked about the facts of life. The facts of life would not have been if it hadn't been led into with real people and real people being a successful show. It's amazing it to me that like, like to be, I guess I'm so used to the times, the, the times where I'm not on anybody's time schedule, but mine when I watch a show. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. it, I mean, the office is on every night at my house. I don't have to wait oh, till yes. Thursday night too. and catch it at eight o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just it amazes me like the audience and they put it up against um, must see TV. They put it up against yeah. NBC's like biggest yes. night. Friends and Caroline in the city and Seinfeld and Frasier. And uh, here's the thing. The only thing I can think of in their defense is it's not the same audience. It's not like we're going to try to drag some of those 24 year olds away from friends and over to our network. I mean, it's it's one of those where to put it there, you're certainly thinking, well, maybe old people watch TV on Thursday nights, too. And they they don't want to watch Friends, so let's give these old fuckers something to watch. Yeah, it turns out they don't. They watch TV on Sunday night and no other night of Saturday night. Saturday night, they watch Golden Girls. And once again, facts of life, God bless. That's what kept it hanging on. So, um, yeah, before we go, we've got, oh, I've got so much more deep diving, Matthew. Before we get to the plot of the show, you're going to be mad at me. No, I'm not at all. Um, Did you get the list that I sent you? Yes. Throughout the show, in 264 episodes, Jessica Fletcher, Angela Lansbury, was a successful murder mystery writer. And throughout the run of the show, her books were referenced on a regular basis. And if you look at the Jessica Fletcher Wikipedia page, there is a listing of all the fictional titles of the books that she allegedly wrote. And there are 42 of them. And they are amazing. And I thought I sent you the list, Matthew, because I thought you might share a couple of your favorites. I do have to say um, the list is funnier Mm -hmm. if you read these titles and then say that was the name of my punk band in the 80s. (laughs) I don't know if you remember my punk band, The Umbrella Murders. But we were a huge hit in Lower Santa Fe. Oh my God! Maybe That's you saw, great. maybe you saw my uh, my my punk band, Sanitarium of Death. Maybe you saw. <laughs> and uh, I was part of a group called Ashes, Ashes, Fall Down, Dead. <laughs> you opened for um, Marilyn Manson, didn't you? I did. Yes. <laughs> You see, I'm drawn to the other, the titles that may not be good rock bands, mm. like things like Dirge for a Dead Dachshund, <laughs> Murder in a Minor Key, The Mystery of the Mutilated Minion, alliteration is a thing I love, of course, um, The Killer Called Collect, That's a that could be a movie from the 40s, I'm sorry, and one of them's just called All the Murderers, <laughs> it's like... Okay, she's taken on a lot there. She's writing a book about all the murderers ever in the history of ever. <laughs> I I did enjoy The Corpse Swam by Moonlight. Mm, that kind yes. of had a romantic sound to it. I a little did. bit poetic even. Yeah. Yes. And my favorite, and I, I'm sure you won't be able to disagree with me, I think my number one all-time favorite, The Stain on the Stairs. <laughs> <laughs> I I highly recommend going to the Jessica Fletcher 
uh, Wikipedia page and looking through the list of them, they're magnificent. They're I just... think I saw a movie called The Stain on the Stairs. Like, don't they show that to you, like, in fourth grade or something like that in health class? It's a... <laughs> And any of these could also be a driver's ed video. One of those films about, you know. Blood on the highway. Yes. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. Funeral in the fast lane. Those type of brilliant movies. So oh. my deep dive was more towards um, the fact that in 12 years, Angela Lansbury was nominated for a Best Actress Emmy. Mm-hmm. And in... 12 years, never received one. She was nominated every year? Every single <gasps> year, David. Shit. She has like 18 Emmy nominations and has never been given one. She's never won an Emmy. So I did not know that. No. I thought she was an Oscar away from being an EGOT because she's got all the, to- she's got four Tonys, I believe. She already she? has an honorary Oscar. She oh, has does a, she? Yeah, she has an honorary Oscar. She also has five Tony Awards. Five. Oh, five. Okay, excuse the fuck out of me. She was. She actually held that record until a few years ago when Audrey McDonald won her sixth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because Audrey McDonald can fart into a microphone and they'll throw a Tony at her. <laughs> Deservedly so, by the, the way. Fuck yeah, Deservedly I listen so. to that. But it just fascinates me that Angela fucking Lansbury had to go home from those Emmy Awards every year and be like, look at her five Tonys, her, her, <laughs> her, her, her Oscar, her nominated, her honorary Oscar and be like, what the fuck is up with the Emmys? Like, yeah. who the fuck She's... do they think they are? <laughs> yeah. She's like, fuck you, Sharon Gless and Tyne Daly. <laughs> And who else would have been the drama winners? I did you look up who actually beat her? Um, yes. I, I know was, Tyne Daly and Sharon Glass, Cagney and Lacey. It went dominated. back and forth between them until their show was canceled. Then it became 30 something. Oh, okay. China Beach. Oh, that's right, China Beach. Um, I and then that. towards the end, a show called Sisters and Picket Fences. Oh, yep. Kathy Baker on Picket Fences. And yeah, Sisters was the show that um uh, our little Alex was on. You know, Alexandra, our princess. She grew up to have a regular role oh. on the show Sisters. Oh. On the Facts of Life, Alexandra. Yeah. Yep. She was on Sisters. Okay. Yeah. And the trouble is, by that time, it's like, ah, this old, this dusty old chestnut of murder she wrote. And But oh. so worthy of a nomination. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, I mean, it's like, she was the primetime Susan Lucci. Oh, God, yes. But they totally. actually finally gave one to Susan. <laughs> <laughs> True. They just said, oh, for fuck's sake. I thought Oscar was her missing EGOT. And she doesn't have a Grammy. Not for a cast album? No. Nope. Not for a... No. Nope. Oh. Two of her Tonys are for flops that ran about three days. So... Yeah. Like, it's like, again... <laughs> What the fuck, mm-hmm. Emmys? Really? I'm not good enough for you TV actors? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and God bless her. I was watching Mary Poppins Returns again Ugh. the other day. I'm sorry. What? You don't like it? Hey, I saw it on an airplane and I almost walked out. It was <laughs> painful. 
David. It hurt my feelings. <laughs> I like it. I think uh, it's sweet. It's not perfect, but are you a fan of the original? Um, the original is perfection from frame one to the last frame. So, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 I might have to agree to disagree on that. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for our very final podcast together. Because <laughs> this, <laughs> this is a deal breaker, dude. I'm, I'm calling Mr. X. I might have to be getting Mr. X back here as a regular. That old queen ain't busy. <laughs> but what I was saying about Mary Poppins Returns was that Angie, in the end, singing that song, the essentially the finale, Nowhere to Go But Up, she is amazing. They just have her propped up in a chair. She doesn't even stand. She is in her early 100s now. And she is still carrying the tune and selling the shit out of it. And she's, I think, 94? No, she was ni- She was like 90 when they made it. Oh. Not that that makes it better, but yeah. she's Because she's, like, she's 93 now. I was so deeply impressed with how still engaged she was not dead behind the eyes it wasn't just a you know like when you think of the later years of um um bob hope oh yeah you know him just reading those cue cards like a mechanical robot yeah i met i met him in 1996 oh did you he was was he also 90 he was at the hollywood studios for um the 25th anniversary and I, i i His wife was moving his hand. Like, it was literally like a weekend at Bernie's. His his wife was moving his hand so he could sign his book. Oh, shit. And it was just, it's like, you don't need the money, Bob. No. (laughs) And still, she has it. The light is still on as a performer in Mary Poppins Returns. At least I believe so when I saw her. So, Angela Lansbury, I love. I just love her as a performer. Who's arguing about the brilliance of Angela Lansbury? Nobody. I'm just stating that ahead of time because we are about to shit on her show and insult pretty much every acting choice that she makes and every line of dialogue she signed off on. (laughs) I'm kind of glad I didn't discover Murder, She Wrote until I was old enough to appreciate camp. Oh, yeah. Because... I agree. Angela Lansbury is a theater actress through and through, and she is playing to the back row of the third balcony in the theater next door. (laughs) Everything is like nobody bothered to say, Angela, the camera is literally a foot in front of you. (laughs) She is. It's selling it. Yeah. I'm 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 not sure I would say she's going that broad, but you you do bring up a point that I cannot argue. Uh, she's a little broad. A, let's a touch. just say a little a little bit. Yes. Leave us turn back the clock, Ooh, Matthew, yeah. Yeah. to December thirteenth, nineteen eighty-seven. It is a Sunday night, at seven p.m. What do you want to watch on television at seven p.m.? Do you want to tune into ABC to watch the Wonderful World of Disney? Do you want to watch 60 Minutes on CBS? 
Do you want to watch 21 Jump Street on this new, barely a year old network called the Fox Network? No, you don't. I can see by the look in your face, you do not. You are going to tune in to NBC to watch the Smurfs, Tis the Season to be Smurfy, followed by a special called A Mouse, A Mystery, and Me, which is a Christmas special about a world-class mystery-writing mouse who spends Christmas Eve with his sleuthing partners tracking down a missing Santa. The special combines live-action footage with an animated character, Alex the Mouse. The voice of the mouse, Donald O'Connor. <coughs> the actor who plays the live-action end, Dick Van Patten. It is on YouTube. You must watch it. There is nothing left to live for after you are done with, I will say it again, a mouse, a mystery, and me. But then we move on to 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock, of course, we are watching Murder, She Wrote on CBS. ABC, my sources can't even tell me what was on. It would typically have been Spencer for Hire, but I, I would wager there was some type of a Christmas special happening there. Fox was Werewolf and Married with Children. Nah. And NBC was a special one-hour Family Ties. Ooh. Uh, and this is where Courtney Cox, as Michael J. Fox's girlfriend at the time, in life and on the show, where she is, like, interviewing the family for a paper she's writing for school. And so they talk about their lives and the family, and we go to clips from the past seasons mm. to support that. Mm-hmm. Sounds very much like an episode of The Facts of Life. Oh, yeah, very true. Coming up. So then, continuing with our evening of viewing entertainment, Matthew, I just want to put forth what your choices are. At 9 o'clock p.m. after this episode of Murder, She Wrote, on ABC was Dolly's Variety Show. Dolly! CBS was the Hallmark Hall of Fame, a movie called Foxfire, based on the play by Susan Cooper, an old woman with a country singer son and a deceased husband who lives on in her dreams looks back on almost a century of Georgia mountain life. And it stars Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin. They knew their audience from Murder, She Wrote, and they knew they were probably going to stick around. As an adult, I don't know what I would like oh, to there's more. Okay, go ahead. Thank you. Oh, oh, oh but, but wait, Matthew, oh, there's God. more. Thank God. On Fox, The Tracy Ullman Show and oh, Duet. That's uh, what I would have been watching. Yeah. God. I, yeah. I wish they would release the original Tracy Ullman shows. They were so brilliant. Yeah. Damn even, it. Her, even her Tracy Takes On was pretty good. Yeah. Some good characters in there. It, yeah. It's okay. I still think the Fox show was the best. Um, and then on NBC, there was a movie called The Father Clements Story. It's the true story of a black Chicago priest who meets stiff resistance from his superior when he tries to adopt a homeless boy to set an example for his flock. Starring Louis Gossett Jr., Carol O'Connor, and Malcolm Jamal Warner. You mean I could see Donald O'Connor and Carol O'Connor on the same night? <laughs> I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> yes uh the title of murder she wrote do you know where it comes from oh i did read it but go ahead 
It's from a film. It is a reference to an Agatha Christie film called Murder, She Said, which came out in 1961. uh, And the adaptation was of the Agatha Christie novel called 450 from Paddington. And in that, Miss Marple was played by Dame Margaret Rutherford. And uh, Angela Lansbury would go on to play Miss Marple in the 1980 film The Mirror Cracked. And they wanted her to do more of them, but this one turned out to not be very well received, even though it had a cast including Elizabeth Taylor, Tony Curtis, Geraldine Chaplin, Rock Hudson, and Kim Novak. In 1980. 1980. And they're wondering why it didn't do well. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Like nobody was rushing out to the latest Rock Hudson movie in 1980. (laughs) No. Now, if they had put John Travolta and Olivia Newton John in there somewhere. Thank you. But uh, yeah, it's a very fun movie because, again, it's got camp quality. But, ooh, Angela Lansbury, she's only in her 50s. And. They've aged her because Miss Marple is supposed to be ancient as all hell. And they've aged Angela Lansbury and she plays it like she takes a really charactery approach to it. No. <laughs> but more than usual. So she's always talking out of the side of her mouth. Well, if you hadn't noticed that he had turned the knob with his right hand and not his left, meaning he was left-handed, she... She plays her really charactery, and it just comes off as, for a film performance, odd and affectated. Slightly and so, broad. Slightly broad. Yeah, <laughs> go figure. So the um, <laughs> so for her, uh, the 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 franchise they were hoping to start did not ever materialize, and it's probably for the better that she got the murder she wrote TV show. So yes, it is a reference to an Agatha Christie. So season four, episode 11 of Murder, She Wrote, Doom with a View, was directed by Walter Grauman and written by Kenneth A. Berg. I did not research them because I forgot to. And in the interest of time, that is probably for the better. So, um, Matthew, would you like to uh, start and tell us what is going on in the episode? Well, what happened was, (laughs) I guess we're to assume it's New York City because... Jessica is arriving somewhere in a cab, mm-hmm. which I'm reminded of the fact that in all 12 years, Jessica Fletcher is never behind a wheel. No. She never drives. She's either driven somewhere or she rides along with people. Yeah. Um, Jessica is arriving somewhere that is being closed down. And as she's going in, out comes who we find out expositionally is her nephew, and they can't stay at his house because there's roaches. There's a bug problem. Angela Lansbury don't deal with no roaches. <laughs> so they decide when you know your house is getting tented, where are you going to go? The Plaza Hotel mm-hmm. in the middle of New York City. Not just any, the, the Montaigne Plaza, M-O-N-T-A-I-G-N-E. Montagne, which I think is the French word for mountain. It's also the the hotel room that they stayed in in Big Business. Is it? (laughs) Yes. It's the the establishing shot of their hotel is the Plaza. The Plaza Hotel, of course. And when he mentions it to her, she does say, 
Uh, the Montaigne Plaza? Why, it has more stars than the sidewalks in Hollywood. Yes. And they have that conversation in the back of a cab while they're on their way there <laughs> in front of what is quite possibly one of the worst green screens I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> so bad. There's practically like a black line around the perimeter of the people. And oh, the other thing about green screens, and I think in those days it was a blue screen, is that what they forget is they're showing footage of the street going by. If you were just shooting it regularly with a normal camera driving around, the background would be blurry. You'd be focused on the person in the foreground, but in just about every camera shot, uh, unless you intentionally do it otherwise, the person is in focus and the stuff in the back is blurry. So to see this perfect, crisp, 100% in focus New York street going by. Oh my God. I like that. <laughs> I did too. <laughs> Again, camp. It's campy. So <clears throat> they get to this hotel and immediately, David, people start acting shady. Oh God. Yes. And this is where I am ashamed to admit, but I'm going to admit it. I can never figure out who done it. Ever. The show surprises you? Every goddamn time, David. (laughs) I am always wrong. And it's like, and I mean, this is in life as well. Like, people are like, what do you think is going to happen with the election or whatever? I'm like, I don't have any idea. I. I don't know. I live life like a dog. I am constantly surprised by things. <laughs> but every every person that is introduced into this episode acts shady. And you're like, he did it. And you're like, he did it. Oh, yep. she did oh, it. Yeah, she did it. No, it's this one. It's this. Oh, this guy. So I must have thought five people did it before the end. And <laughs> it's just... Wow. Well, if I may uh, supplement your wonderful uh, synopsizing, before we even get to the hotel, in the backseat of the cab, we get the exposition of they're going to the hotel because Jessica's nephew, Grady, played by actor Michael Horton, Grady is good friends with this guy named Garrett. They went to school together, and Garrett has married the woman who owns the hotel. And Jessica is like, Garrett, he's he went to school with you. He's so he's your age. And he's like, yeah. And she's like, she's much older, isn't she? And it's like, yeah. So there's a May-December romance going on here. And Jessica says explicitly, I have to say, I can't imagine them together. And he says, well, they're like a couple of lovebirds. Cut to them in the hotel lobby and they are fighting. Cut to... A, well, it's 1987, so a possibly 18-year-old or 40-year-old young man (laughs) is arguing with what looks like Jessica Tandy from behind. (laughs) But it's not Jessica Tandy. Oh, my God. It is Janet Lee. Janet Lee from Psycho. (laughs) Janet Lee as in Jamie Lee Curtis's mom. Yeah, and married to Tony Curtis. 
Briefly. Because that was a completely legitimate marriage. Yeah, he wasn't suck at the pee-pee. Um, the actor who plays Garrett, and they call him Gary, as like is his nickname. And I just want to say to the writers, really? Grady is Jessica's nephew, and he's a recurring. He comes back for several episodes. So you, you take Grady and you make his friend Gary. So talking about, well, Gary, Grady. Gra- well, Grady was there with Gary and Gary, Gary and Grady. With it. it's well, that's like, a plot point. That's a plot point later. The letter G is, yeah. but it couldn't have been something that doesn't end in a Y. It couldn't yeah. have been George. It couldn't have been something that is orally completely right. different from Grady. Yeah. I said orally, Matthew. Giggity. <laughs> so the actor is John Callahan, and he is 34 years old. Janet Lee is... Matthew, she is, she is 60. Shut your <laughs> mouth right now. I know. 60 looked so different back then. Like you said, she looks like Jessica Tandy in Driving Miss Days. She looks like she's 80. Shut shit. your filthy mouth. <laughs> now, Angela Lansbury is 62, by the by. And she looks 20 years younger than Janet Lee. Yes, yes. And when you think of the fact that these two women have worked together already in the past, they were together in a film called The Manchurian Candidate. (laughs) 1962 Frankenheimer film, very famous. I love this movie. And in it, Sinatra is sort of the lead, and Janet Lee is the love interest. Lawrence Harvey plays Frank Sinatra's colleague and angela lansbury plays lawrence harvey's mother and i think she's as old she and sinatra are the same age and we i believe history shows that she was a year older than lawrence harvey playing his mother and and that was one of her oscar nominations by the way and she lost to patty duke in the miracle worker who didn't yeah (laughs) that's the same year that um, feud, Betty and Joan and yeah. whatever happened to Baby Jane, lost to Anne Bancroft. So yeah. it was a heartbreaking year for homosexuals. Um, the other two films that I didn't know about that they made together back in their old days at MGM, uh, there's a film called If Winter Comes from 1947, co-starring Walter Pigeon and Deborah Carr. <laughs> and I swear to God, the, the, um, the trailer's online. If only he hadn't kissed her. If only he hadn't caressed her. If only he hadn't married her. Angela Lansbury is the married her. Adapted from one of the great novels of our time, If Winter Comes. And Angela Lansbury plays the wife, and she's. Uh, it seems like she's playing it kind of like the, the pain-in-the-ass old battle axe, like... The two the two other women he loves, which are Deborah Carr and Janet Lee. Well, she gets her comeuppance because winter came pretty early for Janet Lee. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And then we have another film called The Red Danube from 1949. Also co-starring Walter Pidgeon. He's a British colonel after the Second World War assigned to return Russians to Russia uh, and Janet Lee is a ballerina who doesn't want to go back to her homeland of Russia. And so his military 
his military aides are Peter Lawford and Angela Lansbury, but it's where they end up falling in love. And so does he send her back? Does he not? And uh, so you see what they did there, the red Danube, as opposed to the blue Danube. Red is for Russia. So they have made three films together, Lansbury and Lee. So this is the dream team reunited, Matthew. Which makes me wonder why they are rarely seen in a shot together throughout this entire episode. <laughs> this episode is full of uncomfortable one shots. Yeah. That they don't put the, and it's like, I know Janet Lee isn't looking at Angela Lansbury. I yeah. know she's not. They're not the, in the same room. Yeah. The over the shoulder shot. She has a beard. Um, yeah. It's like, but they don't even show the shoulder. Like it's yeah. not even like, I don't know. It just, it was so weird to me. Like everything was not, there were hardly any two shots in this whole thing. Yeah. And you wonder if it's, if it's because of Angela Lansbury having a certain shooting schedule based on her celebrity and involvement where it's just, no, no, no. Monday and Tuesday, we just crank out all of Angie's close-ups and we're done. Right. And then the rest of the week we use her stand-in for walking around and opening and closing doors and stuff. But, um, uh, Janet Lee is dressed a certain way. Matthew, do you have the words? Do any of us have the words to describe the outfit that Janet Lee is wearing? I'm trying to remember her first outfit. Was it? It looked like something Blanche Devereaux would wear to bed. Yes, it is a dark plum blouse with a ruched mock turtleneck all the way up the neck, and a big cameo pin right at the at the clavicle meetings. What do you call this? <laughs> We call that right there at the collar her, where the call. She, she called it her turkey waddle. <laughs> I would imagine she's but, hundreds of years old. Yeah, but um, yeah, and then so she has like sort of black leggings of some sort, but then there's this flowy, uh, satiny. It's like a mini kimono that only comes down just below the hips, and it's tied around the waist and it's just big flowy but it's bright blue with black and pink and yellow paint smear 1980s patterns it is fan fucking tastic yeah in how hideous it is yeah she's clearly the rich old lady in charge of the hotel i'm thinking what they were trying to do here was a leona helmsley thing don't you i mean probably yeah mm-hmm because, I mean, she was famous in New York. Leona Helmsley was already famous before the scandal and went national. But remember, her lawsuit started in 85. So she was already going through her shit. And then she wasn't convicted uh, until 89 when they got her on tax evasion. And, uh, yeah. So then we have uh, the two of them fighting. And then we meet the next character. And, you know, Matthew, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop again and say... For how campy, for how cookie cutter some of this is, you do got to give the show its props that every week it has to introduce a completely new docket of characters with histories, with relationships, with motives and conflicts. And every week they have to bring them in cold, introduce them to us quickly, get out their exposition and their backstory. I mean, that we do need to stop and say for all this shitty criticisms we're giving of the show right now that is not easy and god bless them they did it for 12 fucking years and the 
the the solution or the re- resolve of the show i mean it's like layered to the mm-hmm. point where it's not like oh yeah i did it because i didn't like her it's like it's like there's some like i had it took me a little bit to get what was going on in this episode uh, yes yes me too so um then we meet the next in this list like you say everybody's acting shady well, this argument that uh, Janet Lee is having with her younger husband over something that he did to do with the hotel. So immediately, I'm just in my way of thinking, just so you know, after this fight, the way it is and the way Janet Lee is acting, I'm convinced she's the murderer. Yep. <laughs> Murder hasn't happened yet. Yeah. She's the murderer. Yep. She's the one because she's yep. already shady. Yep. <laughs> but then uh, this conflict that they're having, it's quickly resolved by... Would you call him the hotel manager? Yes. I guess. And the actor is Robert Desiderio. And uh, he plays a character named Mark Havlin. So we'll call him Mark. And he quickly steps in to say, well, uh, that fuck up thing that happened, I took care of it and fixed it. You know me. I'm always here. I'm always the one that helps out. I'm the indispensable employee just trying to get ahead. And very quickly, it's like, oh, okay, you are the suck up. And he's saying that while he might as well be twirling his mustache like Snidely Whiplash. So yeah. immediately Matthew thinks, okay, he's the murderer. He's the murderer. Not her. It's him. Yeah, it's him. <laughs> uh, so then um, the class, the, the classmate. So Garrett or Gary. I'm going to call him Garrett so that there's a T at the end. Um, Garrett sees Jessica and Grady checking in. He's like, oh, my God, there's my classmate. So their introductions are made. Jessica says she's in town for work. In town for work. She travels an awful lot, and we don't see her writing very much. And yet she seems to put out these novels. But um, uh, anyhow, oh, in the the Janet Lee role, her name is Cornelia. Oh, Cornelia. Cornelia. Yep. So gross. Yeah, but again, like Leona, Leona Helmsley, trying to... Oh, I see. So he invites them to dinner at the hotel fancy schmancy restaurant but cornelia won't be there because she's a workaholic so you're like okay he's the killer because he she won't notice him done that explains the face (laughs) she's a workaholic okay that explains it but garrett does say um no cornelia won't be there but mom will be there Put a pin in that, ladies and gentlemen. Put a pin in mom. And then he also mentions that there's this chick, Jennifer, I'm sorry, that there's this chick named Sandra, an old classmate of theirs, and she was asking about him. And, you know, if you run into her, I think she would love for you to invite her out to dinner. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. So Garrett, Cornelia's husband, the young Garrett is telling Grady that he needs to ask this pretty young blonde woman that they all went to school with out on a date. Yes. Like he's the good guy here. He's, Mm -hmm. he's, he's setting his friend up with this girl. Yeah. So then, um, Janet Lee does finally come over and we do have the meeting with her and Jessica friendly greetings. Oh, nothing is too much for Garrett's guests and all this stuff. And she does say, I have a call that I need to take from Washington you know, the Secret Service, and I really can't discuss anything more about it. And then leaves. Mm. So, uh, continue. What is the next scene? Let me let you do a little talking. This is where Grady 
um, nephew Grady meets the pretty blonde girl. Sandra. Sandra. Once again, they are not seen in the same shot together. Oh, they yeah. Are, they're just giving yeah. their lines to a tennis ball. Yeah, you see somebody coming out of a door and go, oh, hi. And then yeah. it cuts to the person just stepping into the frame. Like, they're, you're right. There's a lot of, yeah, they, they didn't have a lot of coverage here. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's like they had a very strict schedule, I think, to shoot. But yeah. um, but now the slut is, we'll call her the slut. She's, oh, will we? Okay. Um, mm-hmm. But she's the one that is now the murderer in Matthew's head. Because she is being all shady as she gets into the perfectly timed elevator um, after agreeing to meet Grady, nephew Grady, for dinner. Yeah. And there's flirtation. And you do look at it and think, wow, there might be some type of a spark here. This could be the romantic storyline of this week's show. Yeah. Sandra runs into Garrett Garrett. when she gets off. I don't think think she's off the elevator. Yeah. So, yeah, so Sandra, blonde lady, runs into um, young husband Garrett, yeah. and she says to him, Garrett, what are we doing? This is dumb. And he says, anything to keep Cornelia off my back. So very quickly, you're like, oh, they fucking, one of them's the murderer, or both of them, in cahoots, yeah, and, and done. They're in cahoots, he's the murderer. He's going to kill Cornelia for the money. Okay, I'm just waiting for Janet Lee to end up dead in a shower. <laughs> They should have done that. They should have done a shower <laughs> reference. Um, so then we go to the evening and uh, Grady goes to pick her up and brings her flowers. So while he is there, now some of the stuff we are going to go into is seems like minutia, but these are things that we know are important to the plot later. Oof. So he has brought her flowers and she's on the phone. So while she's on the phone, he figures he'll put the flowers in some water. And hilariously, at the end of the scene, she reveals to him that he's actually put them in a pitcher of gin. Yeah, I did uh, see that coming. I did see that me coming. Too. I me figured too, totally. that out. I still don't know who the murderer is, but I figured that out. <laughs> but while she's on the phone, she says, oh, um, uh, she says, well, let me get your phone number and I will call you back. And she pulls an envelope out of her purse and I think Grady hands her a pen and she writes down a phone number and then that's all we know. So End this expensive scene. hotel doesn't have a pad of paper and a pen like every <laughs> single fucking hotel on the planet. This she would have a to... fountain pen. It's the she fucking plaza. Fucking puts the phone down, walks yeah. across the room. Do this. Okay, 80s tech. Yeah. Go ahead. Anyhow, it's 80s tech, yes. So then we go into the dining room. It is the night of the dinner. And Jessica is already seated at the table with Garrett and Garrett's mother, Nettie Harper, played by whom, Matthew? The wonderful Charlotte Ray. Charlotte Ray! But you skipped. What did I, I skip? I almost had a heart attack. The establishing shot for the dinner, the dinner that they were having, which we're yeah. assuming is supposed to be the hotel yeah. that they're eating dinner. The establishing shot is a stock footage piece that they use in the Golden Girls constantly. No. Anytime there's a big shindig on the Golden Girls, it's always at that place. (laughs) (laughs) In Miami. (laughs) That's amazing. I saw that stock footage and I was like, holy fuck balls. No, I totally missed that. Yeah. (laughs) Totally missed that. Oh, shit. I was hoping you would notice that. 
Uh, I was so proud of myself for, for finding that. But yeah. Good. Good for you. Charlotte Ray. Charlotte Ray sitting there looking like she's wearing a wig. I thought it looked like she was wearing a wig. No, that's her hair. That's just she finally cut the length. This is 1987. So we are, this is Christmas 87. So she's already off of the facts of life. This is 87, 88 was the final season. By that time, we had Cloris Leachman. So she had cut the length of her hair to just above the shoulders. And it was just a sort of, uh, you know, set with rollers and tease it up and make it big. And she looks, I think, amazing. Well, again, watching her in HD, (laughs) there was a couple times I noticed lipstick on her teeth. No. Shut up. Later on in the episode, I wrote, is that lipstick on her teeth? No. And you can see once again, her. it almost looks like she's wearing bottom lashes. You can see it so clearly. It's just ridiculous. True. And she is not, certainly not doing her Mrs. Garrett from Appleton, Wisconsin. She's speaking a little posh. She's wearing her blue sequins. And uh, and she looks really good. She speaks very coolly to Sandra when Sandra and Grady arrive. And uh, we are led to believe that Charlotte Ray does not like the blonde slut. In fact, calls her a tramp during this conversation. Yeah. And then when Jessica is looking at the menu, she says to her, never mind the wine list. Look at her. Her eyes haven't left this table, meaning Janet Lee, who is off in the corner glaring. And then we get the, the clip. And this was in the clip before the show. The tonight on murder, she wrote. Yeah. It is Mrs. Garrett. I'm sorry. Uh, Charlotte Ray saying, mark my words, Jessica. There's going to be fireworks tonight. And I love it. I love that Charlotte Ray is finally in a TV show where she is the least broad of everybody yeah. <laughs> that she's acting with. Oh, dear Lord, yes. But it is this conversation that leads me to think she is indeed the murderer. She's the murderer, fucking A. She is the goddamn murderer. And, and I figured out she's going to kill the tramp. Oh, okay. I don't know why yet. I don't know why yet. Yeah. But I think, or, oh, she doesn't like the tramp. Yeah, or she's going to kill Janet Lee, thinking that she was killing the tramp because they both have blonde hair or something. Might as well have been. That happens. That happens. <laughs> then that's a first commercial break. We come back from commercial and we have a confrontation between Cornelia and Garrett. So that's older Janet Lee and her younger husband. And she's complaining about the fact that Sandra has checked into the hotel nine times since they were married about a year and a half ago. I think we really figure what it is. And Janet Lee, by the way, she is wearing a black chiffon dress with a popped collar, big, gigantic, faux diamond, sparkly, dangly earrings. She looks like Elvira's grandmother. Ah. And I mean that in the best way possible. <laughs> she does. She does. Oh, my God. Um. So the word mistress comes out, continuing to lure us, the audience, to believe that, well, there's an affair going on between Garrett and Sandra, and Janet Lee don't like it, and, well, she should not. Um, 
And so he tries to allay her insecurities and says she's just letting her imagination ruin a nice evening for everyone. And by the way, there is a storm outside and we can hear the thunder. Mm hmm. So then, Matthew, what's the next scene? Isn't the next scene um, Jessica Fletcher and nephew Grady? Correct. Lounging and mm -hmm. Jessica's lounging in her full business suit that she wore all day and pantyhose. And a full face of makeup, yes. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. But pantyhose. She's kicked her shoes off, but her pantyhose, nasty old lady feet <laughs> in pantyhose are up on the... <sighs> Up on the couch. <laughs> Get your feet off the couch, Angela. You don't live here. <laughs> but Angela is um, very concerned that he's not going to go out with this young lady tonight. Yeah. And she suggests that he does. And he invites her to go along. <laughs> and, like, mm. as you would... You're taking a, a young lady out. Let me see if this 60-year-old woman wants to come with us. <laughs> Chaperone, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, and they do this thing where this is kind of a little bit of a Jessica character thing, where she's reading a manuscript, and uh, I guess that's the quote-unquote work that she had to do, and she was just kind of like, oh, she's like, oh, my eyes are blurring. I'm going to go to bed. You should go spend time with your friends. And he's like, well, okay. I was going to sit here and watch you read all night. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. So he's like, okay. So he goes out. And as soon as he leaves, she gets back on the couch, puts on her reading glasses, and picks up the manuscript again. That yeah. was totally a ruse. She just wanted him to go out and have a good time. And she knew that the allure of watching her read was just too great a temptation. <laughs> Truly. Yes. So then next we go to Sandy's room. Sandy, blonde woman. Mm-hmm. The door is open. The slut. The room. The, the slut. That's right. I, 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 I'm not comfortable with that, Matthew, because... You drop the C word constantly, and the word slut is... Well, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Slut. We don't want to slut shame people. People, if she chooses to sleep around, that is her body and her... Uh, who's shaming her? I just want to make sure that when we use the word slut, people know that we're using it in the kindest, most celebratory way possible. Can we at least use that as a disclaimer? Yeah. <laughs> it's like okay. when a drag queen calls you a bitch. It's like, it's a pretty high compliment. Yeah, true. Very true. So, yeah, I'm not shaming her at all. Okay. That's I the character. Sure. She's, she's playing the characters. I mean, Charlotte Ray called her a tramp. Yeah. So clearly well, she's, okay, we'll call her the tramp. Then? The tramp. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was very appropriate because Joan Rivers was using the word tramp all the time in 87 and matthew when i call people a cunt oh my listeners know that i am using it with the most affection a person can muster when i drop the c-bomb you which is cunt uh so we go to sandy's room the 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 tramp's room the door is open the room is in darkness still thunder and lightning he knocks on the bedroom door and then he lets himself in because she doesn't answer. And what does he find, Matthew? He finds the tramp. Sandy. If you will. Laying there on the floor. Dead. Okay. 
let me and he goes immediately in no real reaction from him no he's kind of like oh she's laying there immediately goes in to check her pulse yeah on her neck right he doesn't check her if you walked into a room and saw somebody laying there on the floor (laughs) would you immediately jump to i need to check their pulse no, I'd be like nine one one nine one one, or I'd be like, "Hey, wake up!" Yeah, <laughs> are, you know, are you okay? Yeah. Not immediately Please. like, "Oh, she's dead." Let me check, make sure she's dead. Yeah, why? Like he just went right for the pulse. No other. Yeah. <laughs> nothing. She else. might just sleep on the floor with her eyes open. Come or on, or she might just be unconscious. Like you can wake her up. Like just, mm-hmm. I found it fascinating that he was like, "No reaction, check her pulse." Mm, yep. Dead. And while he is doing that. In the other room, the darkened living room, outside the bedroom door, we see Garrett, young husband Garrett, running out of the room, unseen by Grady. And so he sneaks out. So it's like, he was there. He's the killer. He killed her. Could we tell that that was Garrett? Yes. Okay. Oh, God, yeah. Definitely. I I looked away when I saw that. and I was like, ugh, I don't want to go through the issue of rewinding it. Yeah. And then later, I mean, Grady says, I saw you there, but we'll, we'll get to that. So, right. yeah, no, he was there. We saw him. We don't know that Grady saw him, but Grady does see him. Um, so let me go to commercial again. Uh, do you want to talk about the hotel security, head of security? <laughs> again, fucking McGruff, the crime dog, yeah. for God's sake. <laughs> He's taking a bite out of crime. Mm-hmm. It's the trope of... I'm the head of security of this posh hotel. You should have called me first. Yeah. That's... We don't like to upset our guests over little accidents like this. Yeah. And... I did notice that he felt like it was important if there's a dead body to call hotel security before you call the police. Yeah. <laughs> and thankfully, Grady does say, I thought I did the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, then, uh... Garrett and Grady end up talking, and that's where Garrett says, I'm sorry, that's where Grady says to Garrett, I saw you sneaking out of the living room. And Garrett says, you didn't tell the cops, did you? And he says, well, no. And you're, and you're, of course, we are thinking, why? Yeah. At which point Garrett says, well, I saw you over the body, figured I should go get help. If it wasn't for Cornelia, I'd be talking to the cops. Yeah. So there's some sense of some discretion has got to be followed that I don't really fully understand why. Yeah. Uh, there's also an inspector. So that was the hotel security. Then we have the cop, the actual cop. The lieutenant who, because if we don't have enough characters for you. Exactly. Um, I'm like, another one? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, we invite you to be the lieutenant of the police, who is Clayton Blanche's gay brother. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. From the Golden Girls. It's who is so true. Wearing more makeup than <laughs> is safe. Yeah. And you can see every line of it, every yeah. grain of it, um, HD. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've discovered... Now that I've seen him in other acting roles, other than playing Blanche's gay brother, I've discovered that, oh, he is a flaming homosexual. Okay. Oh, is he in real life? Oh, good. Well, because did you not, I mean, this character of the lieutenant wasn't exactly 
like chomping yeah. on a cigar like Ed Asner. <laughs> no, no, not at all. In fact, he is in a tuxedo. He kind of floated into the room. Yeah, he he <laughs> I mean, he doesn't play him like a fucking camp stereotype, but the the character that they're trying to put forth here is he is the police lieutenant, the head of police, but he is more interested in going to the ballet, attending gallery openings and parties. He acts very grand, and it's very much like he can't be bothered with the inconvenience of these crime things that people keep expecting him to get involved with. Yeah somehow made it to a, being a lieutenant without having ever dealt with any crime. Yeah, I wonder, wonder what he had to do to get that far in his job. Hmm. But he shows up, and immediately Jessica wants to talk to him. Mm-hmm. Because why wouldn't she? She's an author. Yeah, I'm a writer, and I have nothing to do to anything <laughs> with this case. And here I am in the middle of a crime scene, and you're letting me touch stuff. Yeah. Oh, my God. She read my mind. She wants to show him two things that she notices that no one else has made any reference to. First of all, clue number one. She walks over to the dresser and puts her hand on top of the dresser as she points to some blood on the leg of the dresser. And so he's like, so there's blood on the leg of the dresser. She hit her head. And she looks and the room is huge. I mean, they did get that part right. She's like, there's nothing here. What would she have tripped over that she could have tripped and fallen to the point of hitting her head and bleeding out? And it's, <laughs> oh my God. She she does everything but tap the blood and taste it, I swear. But she picks up the pillow that has blood <laughs> on it. Clue she, number two. She picks up the bloody pillow, which by the way, <laughs> was the name of my punk band in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, you opened for Limp Bizkit, I think. Bloody pillow. <laughs> um, which is just gross on so many levels but oh, there she's so. like hold practically hugging this pillow with yeah. blood on it <laughs> has i mean when you say she wants to show him some things what she wants to do is tamper with evidence that yes, is what exactly. that's called <laughs> once again proving that she is the actual murderer in all of these cases but actually, I'm, I, I don't mean to correct you, Matthew, but you are dead wrong. Why? Uh, the pillow does not have blood on it. The pillow has lipstick on it. Oh. And what Jessica has noticed is that the pillow is crumpled and stained with lipstick, and yet the rest of the bed is unrumpled and, in fact, already turned down. So clearly something weird happened with this pillow that was not while she was getting into bed or she had gotten into bed and gotten out. So Jessica's making some good points while, as you said, tampering with evidence. <laughs> but the cop says, yeah, okay, whatever. Your nephew was here with the body, and clearly he's the suspect. Dum-dum-dum. Yeah. So then the next scene. Jessica goes to Mark. Remember our suck-up Mark from the first scene when we thought he was the murderer? Yes. Uh, she goes to his room, and she says to him, uh, I figured you would want to be there and be involved in all this and somehow represent the hotel instead of the detective. And uh, he says, oh, thank you so much for coming to my door. And she says, well, I tried to call you, but your phone was off the hook. And he says, yes, I'm so devoted and such a suck up. And I work so hard for Janet Lee. I worked 24 hours straight and I was just trying to grab three hours of sleep in between my workaholic shifts so while they're talking and having this conversation he's re-putting on his suit jacket 
And the I have to say, they very smartly filmed this, Matthew, because when the reference is made that he took the phone off the hook, there is a close-up shot of the phone where you see him pick up the phone and take it and put it back on the hook. And then as he's getting ready, there's also a shot of him taking the flower, the boutonniere. Actually, he takes out the boutonniere from his coat, which is kind of worn out and dying, and picks up the fresh carnation off of the tray that has the chocolates and pops it into his buttonhole just to freshen up his appearance. But because we had that close-up of the phone, uh, we also had that close-up of the boutonniere and the flower. And that was a nice little misdirect, I have to say. Well, that was, and for our dear listeners, um, the flower and the chocolates are brought into the room for turndown service. Exactly. And That's he why says, it becomes important later on when she... Mm-hmm. Exactly. And he says, well, the good thing is, regardless of me being asleep, at least the evening staff came in at 8 o'clock p.m. when they do, and all the beds will be turned down. Yeah. So I I didn't quote it correctly, but the the sentiment was, well, at least uh, we're at the right time of night where turndown service has already happened. Anything to do with the police won't interrupt that, and therefore no other hotel guests will suspect something is weird. And please don't tell Cornelia that I was in here sleeping and grabbing three hours sleep after a 24-hour shift. Right. She'd kill me for taking three hours. (laughs) Yes. Next scene, Grady and Jessica. Grady is sitting in the hotel room, and he's moping because they think he's a killer. At this point, he recounts to Jessica, like, this is where Jessica's like, well, tell me everything, you know, since the police don't know what they're doing, and I do. Tell me everything that happened. Was there anything else that stood out to you about what happened tonight or with Sandra? And he said, no. And he recounts that I went to pick her up before dinner and there was a phone call she got. And you know what? She took an envelope and wrote it down, wrote down a phone number. I'm wondering if the police found that. And Jessica's like, well, you should tell the inspector that. And she says, they didn't find any envelope with a phone number. I wonder if the killer took it because his phone number was on it. Dum, dum, dum. A little bit of a leap, but okay, Jessica. <laughs> I yeah. mean, and and she knows what evidence was and wasn't collected from the scene of the crime. Because she was probably in... because she handed it to them. <laughs> She's intrusive. <laughs> and then they do start to speculate. Isn't it interesting that Sandra is a computer operator? How in the world does she afford to visit this hotel as frequently as she does? And then they kind of make the next leap of Garrett, which is husband whom we presume has been having an affair with her, uh, probably picks up the tab. Hmm. Interesting. And she's a computer operator from where? Where is she from? You tell us. She's from Fort Wayne, Indiana. And who else do we know is from Fort Wayne, Indiana? I am from Fort Wayne, Indiana. I texted you going, ah, my God. And you were like, I haven't watched it yet. And I was like, shit. I, of all the 12 years, David, of <laughs> all of the episodes that we could 264 on, episodes. We landed on the one that mentions my fucking hometown. <laughs> that is insane to me. 
so then our next scene is Jessica goes to the lobby of the hotel to talk to Mark again. And speaking of broad, speaking of performance, yeah. what we have is uh, we know that she and Grady just were speculating how in the world could Sandra afford to be at this hotel. So in perfect acting like I'm trying to be casual, but I'm not up to something... She says to Mark, well, I was wondering, you know, with Sandra's death and all, if there was some way that I might be able to help, but flowers seem so impersonal. Maybe do you think it would help if I were to cover her hotel bill? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and thankfully, I was so glad that they wrote it this way, where he said, uh, you can stop fishing. You can stop fishing, Ms. Fletcher. You can stop fisting. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Say it again. Sorry. You can stop fishing, Ms. Fletcher. Her finances are a mystery that I stopped trying to solve a long time ago. After her first day early last year, she has been there nine times. She's always paid by credit card with no problem. And the question is, who is paying the credit card bill? Dum-dum-dum. And you, you assume what's going on here is that Cornelia has put Mark up to. It's like this bitch that I think my husband is fucking check up on her. So it's not weird that he has such an intimate knowledge of her story. Now that he's sharing it with Jessica. Well, weird. Little, little weird. bit. Little bit. Little bit. Then we come back from commercial and Jessica goes to Nettie's room. <laughs> that would be Charlotte Ray, ladies and gentlemen. This is the second of her three scenes in the show. And this and is the scene where um, I think I saw the lipstick on her teeth. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. it is, this is, there's one more scene after this, right? Do that we have could be it. Third, that could be it. A third time? Wait a minute. Yep. Again. yep, she's back in. And I, yep, it is later because I wrote Charlotte Ray being all shady with lipstick on her bottom teeth. Okay. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. But right. she's being shady as fuck about the chocolate. She's eating the chocolates. That the hotel provides. Yeah. And is encouraging Angela Lansbury to take some. But before she gets into the room, Jessica overhears Nettie on the phone. Yes. Saying something to the effect of, well, this is actually going to work out great. Now you really can divorce her. So you're thinking, okay, Char well. I'm thinking Charlotte Ray's the murderer. Uh -huh. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you're thinking no. Charlotte Ray, totally. Yeah, so you assume she's on the phone with her son. And the idea is that if this affair isn't happening anymore, you can divorce her and have it maybe make some money off of the old bitch. I guess. That's, I think, what I read into it. I didn't understand it at all. Yeah. Did I explain it that it made sense to you? Nope. <laughs> I don't know why Charlotte Ray doesn't want him to be married to someone his own age. I don't understand why, who she wants him to divorce, like, because it comes out later that he's married to one and not really married to the other. Yeah. Oh, sh I, sh spoiler sorry. alert. Spoiler. I just, I did not get it. This is where okay. they kind of lost me. Mm -hmm. Too so, smart. Not too smart for murder, she wrote. <laughs> but yeah, what, like, like I said, my implication was that, and, and what they wanted us to think is it's Charlotte Ray on the phone with her son. And, knowing that the marriage was in trouble 
that her saying now you really can divorce her means you can divorce Janet Lee, most likely because now the woman she would accuse you of fucking the infidelity clause in your prenup or whatever. <laughs> Matthew's Matthew's doing beautiful mind math work in the air in front of his face. No, I've got a cork board in front of me with like pins and and red strings, so I'm getting it. Got it. Okay, yeah. But yeah, it is a little bit of a leap. Yep. But basically when it's brought up, when Angela Lansbury asks her about Sandra, she says, Oh, well, Gary and I barely knew her. He barely mentioned her. And it's like, but you think that he was fucking her? Anyhow. And then she says to Angela Lansbury, but poor Grady, you know, the one that they think is the murderer and that they're accusing, I'm sure he's going to get off and that he isn't involved. And they're doing this whole conversation with her shoveling chocolate in her face. <laughs> and so that's Charlotte Ray scene number two. Yeah. So then we're by the pool and this is where it starts to really go off the skids. This is where it gets fucking crazy. Grady and Garrett are hanging by the pool and Gary admits that they dated like before it was, Hey, you should uh, hook up. I mean, I'm married. So you should get together with this girl we went to school with. Now it's like, yeah, well actually we dated and I just didn't tell you. And here's the thing. I gave her an engraved bracelet and it's in her room in her bathrobe pocket and if the cops catch me, it's all over. But I was wondering if you would go get it for me. Here's a master key from the hotel. And dumbass dipshit Grady says, well, I don't know. And he guilts him. Yeah. Garrett guilts Grady. God damn those G's. Into breaking into a crime scene. Breaking into a crime scene to take a thing. And again, the police were there. It's a murder. They didn't take the bathrobe and they didn't look in the pocket of the bathrobe hanging in the back of the bathroom door. Nope. Really? But neither did Jessica Fletcher. Yeah, so let's true. be honest. If they get past her, chances are good. It's going to get past the cops. <laughs> My notes say, what is happening? <laughs> so he does it. He goes into the room. He tears yep. through the, the label sticker thing they've got sealing the door. Walks in. No gloves. Nothing. No gloves. And then takes up the bracelet, finds it exactly where it's supposed to be, and says, and he reads it, doesn't he? I don't think they even show it to us. It says, to Sandra forever, G. Mm. And he looks up, and there is the inspector, the hotel inspector. The hotel inspector. The hotel security is there. Yeah, yeah. The... No, no, no. Not the cop cop, yeah. because he's off cutting the ribbon at the new bathhouse down the way. Gruff the crime dog is there um blanche's gay brother is not no now we're back in the lobby and now janet lee is there this is after a commercial break by the way so during the commercial break we learn grady was full-on arrested and taken to jail yeah. as well he goddamn should have been come on with jessica <laughs> yeah with her so um jessica appeals to janet lee and basically says, uh, he had a pass key to the hotel, which she has that he didn't tell the cops. The amount of not telling shit to the cops that Grady does yeah. is beyond shocking. Yeah. 
So she says to Janet Lee, Grady sometimes has a misplaced sense of loyalty. That bracelet, even though the initial says G, that was a gift from Garrett, and I think you know that. And so appealing to Janet Lee with these bits, I and mean, Janet Lee's like, ah, fuck. She goes, I gotta find Inspector Metheny to get your nephew out of jail. This is when I think, oh yeah, Janet Lee did it. She's the murderer. Yeah, <laughs> true, yeah. Because oh, okay. Jessica, Jessica's kind of like, mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So then, uh, so so when she says, I need to find Inspector Metheny, that's Blanche's brother, yeah. to get your nephew out of jail. And Jessica says, well, I wouldn't bother going to the police station. Yeah. Cut to. I expected them to cut to like the police academy movies. Like when they go to the gay bar. <laughs> like. But close enough, he's at an art gallery, for Christ's sake. He's at an art gallery opening with a string quartet. (laughs) And a string quartet's playing, and yeah. And so this is where Jessica says that G could have stood for Garrett, not Grady. And she tells him, and I think that's who he was doing it for. And I added, and he's too fucking stupid to tell the truth to cover for a friend. Yeah, Grady is not trying to get out of this murder rap at all. No, no, he's not making a good case. And it's one of those, dude, you didn't do it. We're fairly sure that it's not Grady. That's yeah. the one thing we do know. Yeah. It's like the OJ thing. It's like, okay, if you are innocent, you just tell, stand in your truth, Oprah, and you tell them what happened. Tell yeah. them your story. You're not in a fucking Bronco with a fake beard threatening to kill yourself. If you're innocent, Jesus. Anyway. Uh, so she even pointedly says to him, well, maybe if you spent more time investigating versus going to gallery openings, you have overlooked some of your leads. And he's like, what are you talking about? And she says, the envelope with the phone number. Cut to Grady's out of jail. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's and, like, what? and he's given a lot of shade to Angel, to Jessica Fletcher in this scene. Like, he's not being very nice to the woman who just got him out of prison. Hmm. It, yeah. And this is the point when he's like, yeah, well, you know, Garrett was there and I saw him walking out of the room right after I found the corpse. And Jessica's like, he was there? What the? F-? And she goes, for pity's sake. And you didn't tell the police? And, you know, for pity's sake. What she's actually saying is, for fuck's sake. Yeah. You didn't tell the police? Yeah. And he's like, well, he said he didn't do it. She's like, and you believed him? <clears throat> he could be the killer. And he gets mad. And he's like, I'm going to go take a walk. And she's like, you need to go to the police. And he and walks the out rings. on Angela's and, and he walks out on her. And it's like, what the shit? So she figures I'm not done meddling in this yet. Nope. That manuscript I was supposed to read and be on the couch with my shoes off. I got other shit to do. So now she's at the police station with the inspector, and he is now cooperating. And she has, she has turned the tide with him and convinced him of her sleuthing skills. So uh, they get a hold of her bank statements and her bank book, and they show twenty to $25,000 deposits in over a dozen of them. What do you think it could be? Blackmail? That's definitely what it is, and it can't be anything else. Good choice, Jessica. So then they look at the dates she goes to the hotel and the dates of the deposits. They match. Visit started after Garrett married Cornelia. Uh Uh-huh. It's very, very clear. 
there's some type of blackmail going on here, blah, blah, blah. And as the lieutenant of police, I have just come to this conclusion by talking to an author. Yeah. Got and it. where she comes up with this, and then we continue this in Charlotte Ray's final scene, where she goes back and she's like, okay, what the fuck was that phone call I overheard? And she's like, oh, well, that wasn't meant for you to hear. And then she says, you said something about now you really can divorce. And somehow Angela Lansbury has made the leap to maybe they couldn't get a divorce because they were never legally married. It couldn't be legally married if you were married, if you were still married to someone else. So finally, <laughs> finally, Charlotte is the one who comes clean and confesses. And you're like, is she the murderer? Is she the murderer? Yeah, the murderer. I am convinced she's the murderer at this point. <laughs> and she says, do you know how much anguish and cash that secret has cost us over the years? Garrett was foolish. And that little tramp, she says tramp, yay. She carried around that marriage certificate in her purse and waved it under his nose. So now it's like, oh, so fuck. The whole thing was that they weren't having an affair. She was blackmailing him by nature of not giving him a divorce. And if Cornelia found out, Cornelia would be pissed, nor would he be entitled to any of Cornelia's money. So, But my confusion is, if you have $25,000 to give to this woman... Thank you! Why do you need Cornelia's money? Nine deposits of $25,000 in 1987. Yeah. I exactly. Just, so... It felt like they were already pretty well off. Yeah. And the other leap that we have to make here is that Garrett is so stupid as to think that basically Charlotte says he thought that because he's married to Sandra and then illegally married Cornelia, if Sandra dies, that illegal wedding to Cornelia now becomes valid. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like, um, I think there are five-year-olds who know the law better than that to say, no, that doesn't, one marriage doesn't get valid, an illegal marriage doesn't get legalized yeah. because someone dies. That's ridiculous. But that's the probably the most difficult leap these authors ask us to make. So, okay, there's only 17 more scenes before we get to the end. We're getting there. We're so close. Yeah. Oh, and I'm sorry. All that stuff about the marriages being valid, invalid, that comes out with Jessica and Grady, who have clearly mended fences here, because they're hanging out at the nightclub yeah. with the cool disco music playing. So then Grady does apologize for being such a stupid fuckhead with all the other stuff before and giving her some sass for it. And they're like, well, we were supposed to meet Garrett here, but he's an hour late. I wonder where he is, dot, 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 dot. And then where do we go? We go to the roof of the hotel, apparently. Where, uh -huh. where Janet Lee likes to hang out like a gargoyle in the hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> in a silver reflective astronaut top and a gray scarf. Yeah. So Garrett arrives and you're like, oh my God, he's going to push her off the edge. She's going to die. Or she's going to push him. She's the killer. Yeah. Anyhow, um... He admits it. He comes clean. And he says, Sandra and I were finished years ago. She didn't mean anything to me. And Janet Lee says, spare me having to throw you out. And he says, 
We have a chance for a real life together. No secrets, no doubts. I do love you. And she says, oh, it's my money that you love. And he said, let's go away. Someplace upstate. Just the two of us. And the final image is her thinking about it. I thought they were going to kiss. And I started to get uncomfortable. (laughs) He's 34 and she's 60. There's nothing wrong with that. Except everything. (laughs) I was afraid they were going to kiss. That's all I'm saying. They don't. Mm -hmm. But, So then, Gary goes to the hotel detective. Garrett goes to the hotel detective and tries to bribe him and give him $5,000 to frame Grady Fletcher, like, like blatantly. Yeah. And so uh, then the hotel detective is like, uh, I'd also like a raise, Mr. Harper. And he says, yeah, fine, you get a raise. He goes, good, I'll jog my memory. And then who comes from around the corner and overheard the whole thing? It was Grady. He that- just heard his friend throwing him under the bus. Oh, my God. Garrett tries to talk his way out of it. And Grady's like, no, I get it. 10 or 11 years of friendship. I guess I'm not too bright. I guess and what not. did we, what we said to ourselves? Yeah, that's yeah. not a guess, honey. Yeah. I think Grady had a crush on you, Garrett. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, so we're getting close. It's almost <clears throat> done. All this craziness. <clears throat> then we go to Grady and Jessica's room again. And they're sitting. He is sitting watching television Jessica is, come on, I've made dinner reservations. Let's get out of here. He's, I guess, mopey because his friend, he's lost his friend, and he's all, meh. And then she says, well, let's go because we have our dinner reservations. And she opens the door, and there is a maid with a tray of chocolates and the carnation, the boutonniere. Hello, hello, ma'am. I'm here to turn down your bed. That's not what it sounds like. I just wanted her to be cockney. At which point, Angela does one of her subtle... (laughs) She says, Grady, we're going to dinner, but we have a stop to make first. Oh, my God. It just... I just got the idea to re-release Murder, She Wrote with Scooby-Doo sound effects throughout the episode. (laughs) Oh, God. I wouldn't have been with it if it hadn't been for that meddling old lady. (laughs) So then, um, now we're in the final, the big, the denouement, as it were. Yeah. So we have Jessica with Mark in his office. Mark is the suck up. And so Jessica goes and says, so Cornelia thinks that you and Garrett contrived to bring Sandy into the hotel. And he's like, wait a minute, what? And she says, yeah, well, that's what Garrett said. And you were also responsible for rekindling the college romance between Garrett and Sandra. And like pulling a finger out of a dike, he says, well, did he tell you he was married and that Sandra was Gary's mistress and blah, blah, blah. And Jessica's like, oh, oh, no, that's ridiculous. That couldn't be. And he's like, that's right. They were married in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Cornelia had me checking out Sandra's past for weeks. And so she says, well, then why didn't you tell her? And he says, well, Cornelia's highly strong. What point in upsetting her? And Jessica says, well, I certainly don't believe any of that stuff. You just told me without proof. And he says, proof? Huh. And he goes into his safe and says, you want proof? I'll give you proof. 
and he hands her the marriage certificate between Sandra and Garrett. And he says, here, look at this. It came in the mail this morning. I just hadn't seen her yet today to tell her. At which point, Jessica says, yeah. Okay, this did not arrive today. You took it out of Sandra's purse the night that you killed her. The Flintstones. I don't know. Just random Hanna-Barbera sound effects. What are you doing, dum-dum? <laughs> so, um... And then she does the greatest thing where Angela Ainsbury goes, Oh, Grady. And Grady steps in from around the corner. The door was open and he was listening to the whole confession the whole time. And he says, Yep, that's the envelope that she wrote the phone number on because it's a white number 10 letter size envelope that could not possibly exist anywhere else. Right, right. <sighs> so then Angie says, You said you had been asleep in your room and had taken the phone off the hook. And I noticed the clock said 10.30 p.m. And they go back to the shot where he picked up the flower. And she says, if you were asleep for three hours, then the 8 p.m. night maid wouldn't have been able to come into the room and leave the chocolates and the fresh flower for the turndown service. So that close-up shot before of the carnation is literally the key that solves the whole crime. Yeah. And I, I figured, honestly, Matthew, I did... I didn't know quite how, but I was like, it's this Mark dude. Because at the end of that scene, as I was making my synopsis, I was literally like, so what purpose did that scene serve? Why did that scene exist at all? I had to go back and it was kind of like, oh, okay, I guess it kind of did this little thing. But it's not really integral to the momentum of the plot. But when I watched it the second time... And noticed the close-up of the phone and then the close-up of the flower. I was like, oh, that flower is a thing. This dude is the killer. Yeah. Didn't I didn't know how. I didn't get that at all. <laughs> so then, the killer's confession. <laughs> what's your what's your face? Are you just... No, I'm listening because okay. I could not figure out why this motherfucker had a stake in this. Like, I didn't quite <clears> understand <throat> his... His horse in the race, like you're yeah. gonna okay, commit good. murder, <laughs> like yep. for what? What was your what was your go end goal here? Was yeah. to split twenty five thousand dollars? Okay, exactly. It was every time I asked for a raise, she turned me down. When I learned about the marriage, I was going to tell her, and I don't know who says this if it's him or Angela, but then it's like, but then he realized this was his way out, his golden goose. He watched Sandra showing up and figured out the Sandra Garrett connection and that there was probably some blackmail going on because of who was paying the bills. Remember, he said he knew earlier from checking in on her that her bills were being paid and it didn't make sense that she could afford it. So that night he went to her room and proposed that they split the blackmail money 50-50. He went to Sandra's room. Sandra's room to split the black money. So he wanted, yeah, half yeah. of the $25,000, the random number of times per year that she showed up, they thought to fuck Garrett and be having an affair with him when it was just to show up and remind him that she could ruin his life by telling Cornelia that she is still married to Garrett. But when he proposed this, she laughed. And then we see him 
deck her. Yeah. She falls, hits her head on the dresser, as Angela Lansbury thought. And then we see him take the pillow from the perfectly turned down bed and, and so, smother her. And he's like, I figured, why not finish her off? Oh, you're uh, horrible. Yeah. Like, but like, um, I, did you notice in the reenactment, the, the stunt woman that fell and hit her head was wearing a ridiculous wig. Yes, That was I did. nothing. It looked like that episode of Golden Girls where Betty White's doing the backflips. Yes. Like, it was just that ridiculous of a wig. That it, it was, was a Woolworth wig, yes. Oh, my God. Oh, but my goodness. I still didn't understand. Like, my question, are you done with the whole... Go ahead. Um, we still up. have the epilogue, but no, the mystery is now solved, Matthew. Any questions you have, I can answer. No, I, I just still wonder what his, like, really? That was your stake in it? That was, like, I, I felt a little let down. But, yeah, because, like, and then you and then you kill her, and it's I, like, okay, yeah. well, now now nobody gets nothing. Yeah. And I, I, my question is, and I don't mean this to sound ageist, why did Cornelia have to be 60? Why, Why did, did it, it have, have to, to be, be Janet Lee? Hmm. Why couldn't he have been married to a rich 40-year-old woman or somebody that was his age that was just successful? I don't understand why. Like, they make yeah. it like there's no point to that character being 60 goddamn years old. Unless they wanted, because of the Leona Helmsley thing, they wanted a woman of a certain age. I guess, who, but... Who could be of the age that she has been through the trenches and is now built up to running the best hotels in New York City. I just... I, 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 I'm, I don't disagree with you, but I'm thinking I get their mindset. And considering all the guest stars on Murder, She Wrote, there is not one of them under the age of 60. I get it, but I mean, I just... <laughs> Like Charlotte Ray, there was no mention of, I can't believe he's married to this old woman that's older than me. Or, you know, mm -hmm. like there was nothing about really divvy. And it's good for them, I guess, you know. There's nothing yeah. about her age. But it just, I didn't understand why that was a plot point, but it wasn't a plot point. Like, well, maybe to, uh, to position Garrett as looking like a gold digger. And the fact of the matter is, he was. That was, that was a little on the nose in hindsight. If it had been, we're pretty sure that Garrett is the murderer because he clearly wants his rich wife's money, but he's not. But that's not what it was. They, yeah, I yeah, think it was actually. probably to play up the gold digger All right. thing. All right. I think, yeah. Oof. So then we get the epilogue checking out of the hotel. So Aunt Jessica, did we ever find out what was the phone number that she wrote on the envelope? It was her periodontist's office. She had to change an appointment. Just that, that red herring of what was the phone number. It was just a doctor's office. So then Cornelia and Garrett show up arm in arm. And they say, we're going to give it another try. Mm. And he says to Grady, how would you like to be my best man? And he's like, I'm busy that day. He says, we haven't told you when the wedding's going to be. And he's like, I know. And so they present him with the bill. Yeah. And Never mind says, that you just tried to frame me for murder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just pissy and me, me, me. The balls just... on this guy asking me to be his best man. Exactly. And it's like Janet Lee. Fuck, man. 
He did some shady shit, like some unforgivable shady shit, throwing his friend under the bus like that. But we're going to give it another try. He must have had a gold one. That's what my grandma <laughs> used to say. So but, then when yeah. he's handed the bill, he's like, uh, Garrett says, well, here, give me that. I told you this was supposed to be my treat. And Grady's like, no, I'm paying my own way because you're a bad person and me, me, me. And then he looks at the bill. Cue the Hanna-Barbera sound effects. $2,500 for two nights. And then the clerk says, oh, my goodness, sir. I'm so sorry. There's a mistake. And he's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I thought so. We forgot to add your restaurant charge. Ha-ha! <laughs> a big smile and a wink from Angela Lansbury. Freeze frame. Roll credits. I loved how the um, clerk goes, we hope you enjoyed your stay. Never mind the whole frame for murder thing. Yeah. Or, you know, we hope. Uh, it's like, other than that, Mrs. Kennedy, how'd you like your trip to Dallas? <laughs> Jesus no. Christ. Uh, Oy. Well. I just, if they did that kind of convoluted stuff for 12 goddamn years, more mm -hmm. power to them. Good job, Agreed. And the fact they had to come up with that. And honestly, you know, not all the logic is quite there, but it does make sense. We have to talk through it a little bit. But, you know, how many movies have you seen where you're like, I do not fucking know how we got here. Yeah. I do not know how A led to B to C to D to E where we are. Like I said, this is an underrated series. And I... I hope as time continues, it, it continues to grow in popularity. One can hope. <clears throat> as you Thank hear, I'm starting to lose my voice. Thank you for having me, David. This was fun. Yeah, I, I hope you had fun and don't wish that I'd brought Mr. X back instead to suffer through this. I don't think anybody could stand to listen to his voice that long. Really? Yeah. You didn't like his voice? Yeah. Irritating. Mm. Okay. Well, we are going to wrap this up. That's another TV Talkaholics. Oof. People, membership has its privileges, <laughs> and you get what you pay for. My <laughs> darling Tutti Fruities. Oof. Bye, David. Bye, Matthew. Thank you again, darlings, and thank you, Tutti Fruities, for supporting the show. We love you. Mwah! Let's Face the Facts was created, produced, written, hosted, and by the wonderful David Almeida. Our theme song was beautifully arranged and recorded by Ned Wilkinson. Please visit facethefactspod.com for supplemental photos and videos, links to social media, and ways that you can support the show. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. This is Matthew Arder saying tune in again next week for another thrilling episode of Let's Face the Facts.